This is the Doctor Who Podcast, and you are most welcome. Well, as we begin the long wait for the first episode of The New Doctor, the Doctor Who Podcast returns to the first episode of An Old Doctor. Hope you have your nightshirts ready. For that, Michelle, and uh, nice to see you in the camper van again. Thank you very much. Good to be here. And we are also joined, as always, by James. As always, there was some kind of resignation there in, in your voice. <laughs> well, you are the the glue, the backbone here, holding us all together, James. Well, I'm very glad you think so. <laughs> you, you mean the one we can't get rid of? Yeah, there you go. I did say glue. <laughs> Sticky. Yes. Well, carry on, Stephen. I'm going to do this next week. well now having insulted each other it actually is really good to be with you guys again in the camper van what do we have today well we're going to be discussing john pertwee's first story i think john pertwee's arrival signified a huge change in the direction of, of of the show and you could almost say that the producers flipped it around completely from what had come before and there were so many firsts and so many new starts and uh, that's something that is is very pertinent in Doctor Who fans minds now as as we're watching Peter Capaldi film his first few well first few weeks as the Doctor but before we get heavily into that analysis we're gonna flip it around here at the Doctor Who podcast as well and we're going to play part two of the retrial of a Time Lord which is actually focusing on the sixth Doctor era Stephen Elsden joined Ian and I last week to take a look at the first two episodes in the Trial of the Time Lord season. He'd never seen them before. And this is what he thought of Terror of the Vervoid and the Ultimate Foe. Over to you, Ian. Once upon a Time Lord, the Doctor took a rest. Criticised for violent themes and poor sartorial dress. But now, 18 months later, the Doctor's back at last. Will the trial of a Time Lord be a success, or just a total farce? Hello Stephen. Hello Ian. So, we, we've got past the Perry era, enter Mel. 38, 39, 40, pop, Carrot juice! It'll do you good. Honestly, carrots are full of vitamin A. Mel. Have you studied my ears lately? It's your waistline I'm concerned about. No, no. Seriously, though. Is it my imagination, or have they started to grow longer? I uh, put my put my colours on the mast when we did Seventh Heaven. I'm a big fan of Mel, and I think she's uh, she's an interesting character in this adventure. Very interesting introduction to a companion that we're dropped into the into the middle of their time with the Doctor. I can't think of a of a companion before then that we didn't see their their, their introduction to the Doctor at the at the start. I mean, obviously we've had that since. Again, that was slightly jarring, and I've I've talked about the jarringness of uh, of, of some of these other adventures. I love this story. I thought it was fantastic. It put me in mind of a, of a classic Fourth Doctor serial, fa- fantastic cliffhanger endings, the mysterious creature on this ship, the um, you know the, the, the locked in, not not quite the base under siege, but you know the ship in peril. I mean, I had so much going for it. The Agatha Christie notes running through this uh, 
through this story. Lots of Star Trek influences, even down to the uh, the Commodore's communicator and the, and the sound it makes. And they, they talk about having phasers as well. I mean, they, they, they don't care who they're um, uh, you know plagiarising with this one. <laughs> but, uh, but I thought this actually was the strongest for me of all of the adventures in the in the Trials of the Time Lord uh, sequence. Again, uh, the trial sequences don't really add anything though i did think towards the end of the actual uh, cliffhanger at the end of this uh, of this story with uh, with, with with the valiard for, for the first time since the first uh, episode of, of of trial i thought actually the valiard's got something going for him and it made me want to tune in the following uh, the following week but so the, the uh, charge of genocide is probably the only part of the entire sequence that you think actually yes you could put that charge because the rest of it was ludicrous and illogical really what they were well yes I mean, well, the, the whole the whole case yeah, seems a bit a bit ridiculous of course the genocide but is only found because he sees the piece on the matrix and thinks ah oh, right now I can pin this on the doctor I've actually got mm. something that I can you know properly accuse him of I thought this was great I mean it's a shame that the you know, the, the vervoid costumes are obviously a little bit disappointing <laughs> um, slightly reminiscent I thought of uh, of Audrey too in the uh, little shop of horrors but that didn't take away um, from from our sort of very very strong story you know the the, um, the 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 woman who keeps coming out of the room with the the, the plate smashed you know you think oh what's behind what's behind there and that was quite horrifying when they found the woman who's you know been infected i thought there were some great great moments and a, and, a, and a good strong story very reminiscent of tom baker's era in fact i thought there was a very strong robots of death vibe to yes it. absolutely and yes. not just because of the whodunit at murder on the orient express hints and there's actually a call out to that because uh, on a blackman's character is reading murder on the orient express but the production design and the music and the special effects i thought all of it was very very reminiscent of robots yes and uh, and of course the um uh, the, the megarians you know in a way you thought they were androids didn't you well i certainly did at the beginning you know very very similar to the uh, to, to the robots in, in robots of death you know i love the fourth doctor so any nod back to the fourth doctor is going to score points for me we talked last time about colin's character and how he was starting to mellow him from the original uh, abrasiveness for me i think this is possibly his finest hour because i think he actually becomes a much more sympathetic and charismatic doctor in this story than in almost any other yes i think so i mean he's he's got a clear focus in this story i think there was a there was a mystery to be solved and i, and I suspect colin baker reveled in the fact that there was a was a through line a clear through line for his character in this in this particular story colin had a, a great relationship with, uh, with with nicola bryant clearly that carried on after doctor who but i think you can see his enjoyment of working with bonnie langford as somebody who's an established actress in her own in her own right and i think they had a great chemistry from the, from the off here Come on, Doctor. Come on, hurry. How I keep up with you is a constant source of amazement to me. No one sends a Mayday call unless it's a matter of life and death. Yes. Well, let's exercise the grey cells for once, shall we? Rather than the muscles. I thought even in the court scenes, because most of the court scenes, I agree with you, as you were saying previously, I think, to James, that back and forth of the Valiard was just horrible and Colin is worst yes. but in this episode he was much softer and more sympathetic and actually quite likeable Yes, I, th- I think he's probably starting to get the measure of the of the trial in a way. I mean, whether that's intentional, you know, the way he was playing it. But obviously, we're three, um, you know, three matrix uh, uh, sequences into the into the trial, and I think he, you know, this is where we're starting to turn that the, the the doctor is 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 solving the problems. He feels this is his trump card. You know, this is his way out of the trial, and I think that's that's coming through. Which is why, when of course he's slammed with this accusation of genocide at the end, he thinks, "Oh no, actually, I've shot myself in the foot." Or that's you know what the viewer's supposed to think anyway. Had even a leaf survived and fallen on fertile soil a vervoid would have grown every vervoid was destroyed by your ingenious plan yes 
Whether or not the doctor has proved himself innocent of meddling is no longer the cardinal issue before this court. He has proved himself guilty of a far greater crime. The doctor has destroyed a complete species. The charge must now be genocide. So, having got through what is possibly one of Colin's finest stories, certainly in this season, we now have to get to the finale with the ultimate foe, and here comes James to talk about it. Okay. You said you were sent here, Savalon Glitz. By whom? By me, madam. Oh, no, now I really am finished. Who's that? Just one of my oldest enemies. This is entirely irregular. Who are you, sir? I'm known as the Master. And as you see, I speak to you from within the Matrix. Proof, if any be needed, that not only qualified people can enter here. But you haven't the key of Rashalon. I got a very good copy keeper, just as the doctor said was possible. Okay, we've reached the end of this season, and it culminates in a two-parter called The Ultimate Foe. I didn't understand it then. I don't understand it now. <laughs> what did you make of it? I'm not sure. I, I've uh, managed to, uh, to to work it out. I should say I actually watched this um, on, on, the, uh, on the 50th anniversary day before I sat down to watch uh, The Day of the Doctor and uh, never, never could you see two more diametrically opposed <laughs> Doctor Who's, quite frankly. When I first watched this, I thought uh, I didn't like it. It was all over the place, very choppy. As I was thinking back prior to, to us recording this session, I was, I was actually remembering lots of parts of it that I thought were quite strong. But quite frankly, what on earth is going on? I mean, I understand it had some production difficulties. There's, there's two, two writers. The second part was scrapped and somebody else had to write it. So it doesn't, it's not a coherent whole. You've got mm. this, this wacky uh, ultimate uh, plan by the, uh, uh, by the master to, to vaporise everybody in the, in the courtroom, if I understood that correctly, you know, with some laser that's going to fire through the screen, uh, which I thought must be the most sort of highfalutin uh, plot of the master ever. But you've got these amazing sequences where they go to, uh, you know, Victorian, Victorian London, which mm. were quite creepy, and uh, the piece where the, the doctor's looking into the barrel and the hands come out and, th- and start trying to throttle him. Lots of, lots of lovely moments, but it really didn't, uh, didn't gel together at all. No, I find it visually memorable. Yes. And I think there's lots of scenes that just stick in the mind. And I think perhaps they were actually trying to achieve some kind of iconic images because people always think about Colin Baker disappearing under the sand on the yeah. beach. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, Fantastic and fa- moment. And, and the Fantasy Factory as well, So, yeah. which is just weird. It's just surreal. And you don't know what's real. You don't know what's happening. You've still got Mel, who's a future companion, but she's here now. Yeah. So I think this is very, very confusing. Do you feel some of the questions that were asked back in the mysterious planet were answered satisfactorily? In no, I didn't really understand understand it. I mean, I know they're trying to sort of you know explain what was in the um, the robot's case and uh, why the Earth was moved, but it didn't really make much sense much sense to me. No, um, I, I've retconned it. You know, <laughs> yeah. Well, because Marble Arch was in the mysterious planet, I've now thought well because the London Underground is a key strategic weakness, it shifted itself through space. <laughs> Maybe, maybe the great intelligence is behind all of this. There you, you go. Know, you never know. But um, no, I, th- I thought this, I thought this had some some fantastic moments. I mean, arguably, I don't know whether they were influenced a bit by Kafka's The Trial because it has that feeling to it. You know that yeah. uh, you've got these weird people, and it's you know when he's trying to see uh, it gets past Mister Popplewick, isn't he, to see uh, to see the chap who's running the the, yes. the, the, the the factory, and he's never getting beyond. He opens a door, and it's another version of of, of Popplewick. And I thought the um, uh, the mask off moment was fantastic. I mean, that would have looked good on a Mission Impossible film, quite frankly. I think they probably blew half the budget for this adventure on the uh, on the mask that they made there. Uh, in a way, it was nice to get to the end of this, <laughs> the end 
of this uh, of, of this arc, and I think it's probably uh, you know maybe as good an end as, you, as as you're going to get. And as you say, it's got lots of fantastic iconic yeah. moments. But I think if you try and think about it too hard, you're going to go mad. Well, which I think is why lots of fans don't like it because they do try and make it all make sense and when you consider it, it's only the second time that they've really tried to have a central theme all the way through an entire season indeed and yeah, yeah. You, you can say that they they tackled the same concept differently which is admirable in itself but for me it was it was far less successful yeah and, and i thought the, the the you know the ultimate answer to who the valiard was really didn't make sense to me and 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 the master as well i mean there's that moment where the master appears on the screen in the courtroom and everybody else in the court is just sort of you know shrugs their shoulders as if you know they they don't care that a master villain has somehow hacked into the uh, hacked into the matrix and is yeah. threatening them all it you was know, almost the, as if they didn't know who he was no, it's it no, only exactly. colin baker yes. who reacted <laughs> but yeah i i don't know i remember that appearance having a bit of an impact because I remember I was a big fan of the master when I was younger yes. and so that was good it's just a shame no one else on screen shared that moment with me no. really. <laughs> and, and, and so towards the end where you have this big fight and the immortal lion uh, the megabyte modem uh, you know forever dating this story in the 80s yes um, I mean was it a satisfactory ending at the end of it do you feel uh, I don't know what would have been a satisfactory ending. I, I, th- throughout this season, I thought that we've had three good to good to very strong stories that have been uh, diminished, if you like, by the trial. And I didn't see enough in the in the ultimate foe to to warrant having those inter- interruptions of the trial sequences in the previous three three adventures. So mm. I think as a, as a, as a, as an arc idea, I don't think it works. I think they would have been far better to have scrapped the trial had the three stories running without the trial sequences and come up with something better, maybe using some of these uh, these notes that were strong in Ultimate Folk to make a more compelling, coherent story. Stephen, it's been great having you back in the camper van. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed your time here again. I certainly and, uh, have, yes. Wonderful. And uh, we'll find some other stuff that you haven't seen yet to cover <laughs> review later on. <laughs> there are so. a few. <laughs> Thanks very much, Stephen. Thank you. I've really been enjoying hearing Stephen's opinions of these and and look forward to watching the uh, season 23 start to finish myself one of these days. Oddly enough, I have recently read the Target novels for Terror of the Vervoids and the Ultimate Foe, and uh, regardless of what you think of the TV series, i got to tell you, of all the Target novels I've read, those are my least favorite novels. I really... (laughs) They're both by Pip and Jane Baker, and I just don't care for the writing style. Uh, So... I have a hunch that when I watch the actual television series, I'm going to enjoy it more than I did the novels. I'm not a big reader of the Target books. I, I, I was years ago, but I've got very little memory of, 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 of how they were or a, of any particular novel, to be honest with you. Did the novel of Vervoid still revisit the court every now and again, or was it just uh, you know one big long story in the court scenes at the beginning and Funny end? Funny you should ask, because now I can't remember. I Honestly, I don't think it did, <laughs> if that tells you anything. It's not that long ago that I read it either. I don't think it did. I, I think it was just the uh, the actual story, and, and my problem with it was that the, the authors seemed particularly patronizing to the readers. I mean, they really spelled out over and over again what was going on instead of letting you experience... Uh, the adventure as it unfolded, they kept telling you what you were supposed to have caught in that scene, and it, it just wasn't necessary. But Perhaps they should novelise some of Stephen Moffat's stories. <laughs> hey oh. I, I would absolutely love to read a novelization of A Good Man Goes to War as written by Pip and Jane Baker. People <laughs> will pay good money for that. <laughs> is it just going to look like Swiss cheese, which is what people would probably you know say about it, but uh, with all the plot holes? <laughs>
<laughs> Swiss <laughs> cheese, plot holes. That was a really belabored joke there. Sorry. Um, See, now what you would need is someone to explain it for you afterwards. <laughs> I'm explaining the joke. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're, you're well on the way to writing, just like Pip and Jane Baker, Stephen. That's, that's exactly how it works. But you know what? I think that we can actually transition to something that I have a hunch we may have enjoyed a lot more and that perhaps had a somewhat tighter plot. Aren't we supposed to talk about Spearhead from Space today? Do you know him? What? No, I thought I might do, but he's a complete stranger. I've never seen him before in my life. Oh, that's Bridget Stewart. My dear fella, how nice to see you again. He knows you, sir. But he can't do. Look here. Can you hear me? Who are you? Don't you recognize me? I'm positive we've never met before. Dear. Oh, I can't have changed that much, surely. I must see what they've done to me. Can I, can I borrow? Can I borrow a mirror, please? Oh no, that's not me at all. <laughs> no wonder you didn't recognize me. <laughs> oh, that face. I really want to go back to what James said uh, in the intro, and he's talking about how this third Doctor's first adventure. A very timely because we're watching Peter Capaldi filming his his first adventure as the Doctor and and I feel like I'm already seeing some some similarities and and thinking about things that could possibly be happening because uh, the similarities between Spearhead from Space and the Doctor in his pajamas apparently and you know and maybe maybe he was in a hospital and maybe he's you know he's running around and being chased by his companions because because he's still a little bit crazy and stuff like that. Obviously, I'm really excited to see what uh, see that first episode from Capaldi. But I, I do wonder if there's a lot of uh, inspiration coming from uh, from the Third Doctor's era and from from Spearhead yeah. from Space. I think Spearhead has been the inspiration for for many stories that we've seen. You take a look at the television movie as well, and of course the Doctor regenerates in a hospital. Yes, it's in America, and and again in the Eleventh Hour. You know, there's there's lots of homages to Spearhead from Space littered throughout subsequent Doctor Who, and I, I think that's done quite deliberately because you know it, it's a story that is is very dear to to many fans and you know i think it's true to say that many fans fandom if you like really kicked in with john pertwee because he was a well-known actor people have known him from the radio he transitioned over into television quite successfully and uh, i think that's when the show started picking up a much bigger fan base and I, I think it's only right that modern day doctor who recognizes that leading into it there had been a drop-off in people watching the patrick troughton era and i think there was even yeah. some some doubt as to whether the show would continue at all. Uh, evidently, they didn't have anything to replace it with and, and went on forward. But as you say, this was a great success. The viewing figures came way back up, and, and you can see why. It's got a, a whole new energy and a fresh take, and John Pertwee's great. He hits the ground running in this. Boy, a couple weeks ago in our predictions episode, Leeson predicted that Capaldi would be dashing and, and charming, and, and that's the John Pertwee doctor through and through. He is so dashing in this. He's such a hero. Uh, he, he starts off with that elegance and humor and a little bit of mischievous underneath, and, and you can't help but watch him. He's brilliant, isn't he? I mean, he, he, he's so charming. You go from, from Patrick Troughton, who was a sort of, you know, bumbling chaplain-esque almost, you know, I, I know that that's 
a little overused but anyway to someone like like john pertwee who is who really is the james bond of doctors the way that he talks to everyone around him is just so he's so smooth he's smooth well he, he was i mean you could see him turn on the charm with liz shaw mm-hmm. He he manages to portray this vulnerable individual, and yet he's also got this quirkiness. I mean, particularly this line about shoes, which is is fantastic, and of course, I think almost certainly inspired the Paul McGann line mm. about these shoes fitting perfectly. I think shoes were his first words, and uh, of course, you had the whole scene, the whole setup there, the people taking an X-ray of his chest and seeing two hearts and then believing it to be a double exposure or or, or an error or a joke I think but again the doctor Henderson slowly coming around to accept that this patient wasn't of this earth and I I just think it's it's amazing to watch this story in hindsight and there are so many things that are familiar themes that have been repeated not once but twice or in some some occasions more than that and as you say things that became core to the show I think the the phrase dimensionally transcendental we hear for the first time here about about the interior of the TARDIS. And um, yeah, I I agree with a lot of the things you said. You know, one of the things I like, he may be kind of bonkers in the first episode and, and unconscious much of the time and just slowly coming around. But very quickly, when you get into the second, third and fourth episodes, he becomes the doctor and you don't have to wait. You don't have to wade through too much of that strangeness before you you find a person that you could love no i agree and and i think it's the brilliance of of liz shaw again we were talking about the show starting again from scratch there hasn't and there, and there wasn't a companion quite like liz shaw before and again i think in a way her portrayal in spearhead is actually quite unique i mean she only appears in four stories but she comes across when she's introduced as a professional person absolutely no nonsense whatsoever and she's not going to be told what to do and i i think the doctor decides yes there's a kindred spirit there um that's when you start seeing all of the doctorish traits come out is when he's engaging with liz and you can see the formation of what becomes a very strong friendship you know at its early early stages there and it, it's quite mischievous i mean e- even when he manages to persuade liz to to nick the tardis key i think in episode three you know he's he comes out of the TARDIS with a whole load of smoke with a, a boyish grin. You know, he looks as though he's been caught out and he, he just oozes charm and charisma. And you, you just think this guy is incredibly endearing. And, and again, he went on to woo an entire generation of fans as well as Liz Shaw, as it turned out. Was that the, the first time it, he didn't actually use the words, but um, that there was a reference to the like isomorphic, you know, because uh, I. Ah, he said something about metabolism or coded to his metabolism. Yeah. Metabolism metabolism detector. Yeah, yeah. which was yeah, that's right. cobblers, really, I suppose. it was. I don't think it was ever used again, certainly not that terminology. No, no, you know, but it, there was. There were so many little little things like that that obviously were you know, thrown put into the episode. And, and while it wasn't specifically used again, it, it is something that, that does get, continually come up in, in Doctor Who when... It's one of those tropes, you know, that that it can use when it needs to make things more difficult than they have to be. So maybe, maybe. I like to think also that the fact that he locked himself out of the TARDIS or he lost the key, it was from that point onwards or just after the events of Spearhead had completed, he climbed up on top of it and put a spare key just behind the P. That's when it happens in in, in my book as well. But the whole look of this story, um, I think, assisted in 
creating the image of something fresh and something new and part of that was by accident because the entire thing is shot on location due to a BBC strike it so nearly didn't happen uh, at all but as it turned out it was one of those things that it's been an absolute blessing because we've now got our Blu-ray version of Spearheads because of the way it was filmed can go into high definition and it looks absolutely beautiful. I've never seen anything made in 1970 as clearly as, as this. I think it shows off the period very well despite the fact we only get one corridor scene I think or one corridor used in the hospital and it doesn't really look like a hospital <laughs> to me. <laughs> Not, it looks like some kind of gentleman's club to the point whereby you've got the doctor actually going through the bathroom door that's labelled doctors only, <laughs> which I, I assume wasn't a coincidence. Well, and that brings up some of the humour that runs through this. I, I, I love the wheelchair chase. <laughs> that, that, you know, that obviously could never have been done in a studio, I don't think, but it, it is so much fun even even while having jeopardy not only does the doctor have this whimsy but the show has a whimsy that doesn't detract from the seriousness of the threat which is very serious in here too but lovely tone in a lovely setting i'll tell you in terms of the settings this is the kind of show that makes us americans want to come over and hang out in britain i'm talking about the locations those beautiful woods and and the heather or whatever it was that was in bloom and yeah yeah no certainly and i, I think that was really good and it was one of the things on my list all of these land rovers and soldiers chasing through bracken and uh, countryside and so on i think that does look really good and i'm not sure the Pertwee or at least ever did exterior filming like that as well again did either of you notice a certain Prentice Hancock I think it was in episode one when all of the reporters were were, were milling around the hospital just because someone phoned up and said oh I think you better get down here and all of a sudden, you know, all of the press descend on this hospital. But one particular reporter revisited Doctor Who quite a lot in future. Did either of you pick him up? Mm-mm. I know of that, but I didn't recognise him. Prentice Hancock. And he played Jimmy. I think he was credited as Jimmy. And he was one of those reporters. I think he had one or two lines, if that, just to say what's going on here. I'm not really quite sure. But, of course, he revisited Doctor Who many, many times. I think at least... At least three other times. And I feel like having a little quiz. Can you remember? Name the three episodes. <laughs> no. <laughs> the Prentice Hancock. No. No. No idea. No idea. I thought you were okay. making up that name when you said it. So. Prentice <laughs> <laughs> Hancock. I mean, have either of you seen Planet of Evil? Tom no. Baker. Oh, yes. Back well, when I was yeah, a yeah, te- yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, teenager. <laughs> Salamar. Salamar. He was the main character in that. Okay. And uh, he's gained quite a reputation. I have a feeling he was on the billing for Gallifrey at one point. And uh, he's one of these guys who have returned to Doctor Who and always managed to have really prominent roles after a very insignificant one to start with. But uh, he was also in The Rebus Operation and Planet of the Daleks. He played Weber, I think, in Planet of the Daleks. And this was his first outing. Yeah, you see you're mistaking us for Toby Haydock. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, another important part of the story we haven't touched on yet, what do you make of the Autons? You know, I, I think I think what's great about <laughs> what's great about the, the Autons being uh, in this episode and it, and it's sort of the same same reason why they're such a great threat in uh, in Rose and, and they and they continue to be a uh, a, a, a a useful monster is that they're sort of um um Autons are like tofu, 
where they just take on the flavor of whatever else is going on, right? It's not it's not really something that you like that needs to be the main part of a meal, you know. They're not it, the all towns are really just sort of um, you know pushing the story forth. They're, I don't feel like they're it's a it's a huge threat. I just feel like it's good that they're that they're there because they're they're a simple threat. We know what they are and we know what they're doing, you know, and and, and uh, they're trying to they're trying to take over the world with plastic and it, and it can and we can sort of focus on the other things that are happening around it, which is all of the stuff that is going on with the the doctor and unit, you know. There is that, you know, obviously in the in the in the classic series because the stories are longer, there's there are extra side stories and we can get more backstory to what's going on and we can get the side story at the factory and stuff. But really, they're just a, a good intro monster to i feel like they're a good monster to intro the doctor yeah i think they're foot soldiers really i mean they, i don't think they're supposed to be the chief threat that's meant to be the nesting consciousness isn't it and uh, mm-hmm. they're essentially just a scary set of henchmen and i i think they are very effective particularly in this story and i i remember at the time well i don't remember at the time because i wasn't alive but i've remembered lots of people who who were around at the time talking about how scary all turns all turns were particularly to children after this story went out and i i think i can understand why looking at these these plastic expressionless faceless creatures almost in boiler suits running around the countryside i mean they're, they're agile they're quick they're utterly ruthless and merciless and then in episode four we're shown that they're going to be you know in any shop window up and down the country i think it's a genius idea i think it's it's probably quite of its time um because i'm not sure they work so well again when they were used in rows despite the fact clearly using them to show off a, a brand new doctor was yet another homage to spearhead i i i just don't think that they were done quite as well again i think that spearhead was the best outing i, I agree i was trying to think of my, when i was watching i was like wow the Altons haven't been back since since rose and then i totally forgot about big bang and pandorica but they've been moffatted haven't they yeah you know they, they, really, they are yeah. really souped up different kind of monsters and whilst it's paying a kind of homage to a classic monster they are essentially something brand new it was never really explained in, in, in intricate detail, their, their role anyway. I mean, I, I still wasn't convinced Rory wasn't an Auton uh, in, in Series 7. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do agree that they're used very effectively here and, and are particularly creepy. But just as one beat in some very creepy beats in this whole story, it, along with the lightheartedness, there's this dark stuff going and, and the balance is just right. But there are some some very gruesome sequences in here i mean from from the car accident with plenty of blood on the windshield to uh even the sequence of the dolls being made in the factory is just ooh, it's creepy it makes you shiver <laughs> do you know i i know exactly what you mean and yet there's absolutely no reason why we should find watching dolls or bits of plastic being assembled on a production line creepy but it but is yes there is it, yes there is they're creepy those plastic plastic baby dolls are creepy period they're just they're weird they don't look there's nothing lifelike about them it's just these weird dead glassy eyes it is creepy so watching them being made and all dismembered it's like it's like the toys in the bad kids room in toy story they're all creepy and weird and deformed yeah yeah i think the dismember you know seeing parts of them and seeing them kind of thrown onto the conveyor belt it's amazingly powerful imagery uh and and another thing that i think adds to that um the the character ransom uh who's played by derek smee he he's the guy that 
becomes panicked and and sh- in shock. And the, the sequence where he is shaking and the tea is dribbling out of his mouth, it's just, ooh. I mean, it it makes you yeah. really concerned about what's going on in this story. Oh, it does, but doesn't he recover quickly, though, essentially, and, and just sit there and talk to the doctor and the brigadier without any, any real trouble? And, and again, I, I appreciate after my George Formby joke last week, this may also not be appreciated, but... Jim Dale, does he ring a bell? It does. Now he's in the Carry On films, which I don't know whether or not made it across the, the channel. Very baldy British comedies, but uh, there's there was a regular actor, along with the main stars, Kenneth Williams and, and Sid James, called Jim Dale. And Ransom, Derek's me, looks very, very similar to him indeed. In fact, I remember when I first saw this, I thought it was him. <laughs> Yeah, the the carry on films I've heard of, but I've never seen any of them. So probably best if you leave it that way. If I were you, Stephen. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But it's been on my list for a while, actually. Oh uh, well, good luck to you. <laughs> now, all, all in all, Fear Heaven Space is probably my favourite debut story for any Doctor. Uh, I, I don't think it was ever surpassed. And I know lots of people will end up saying the 11th hour, the 11th hour, because so many people seem to really rate that story. But Spearhead from Space, for me, is is where it all started. It's where Doctor Who started looking fantastic. The performances were just immense. We see the Brigadier for the first time, and my goodness, does he slip back into that role effortlessly. He's, he's such an engaging and empathetic character, and uh, I, I love the fact that there's reference to the two previous times when the Doctor has visited as well, Weberfear and uh, the Abominable Snowman, you know, when he's talking to to Liz Shaw. And even at this early stage in the relationship that he has with the Doctor, there's something whimsical about the way the Brigadier talks about the Doctor. And it, it's captivating and it's it's exciting. And, and then you get a sense of his urgency and, and uh, excitement again when he realises that he may have returned because they found the police box there. And it, uh, it, it it's just a wonderful story all round, Spearhead. Yeah, agreed. You know, Nicholas Courtney manages to play smug at the beginning there when he's first talking to Liz and he knows there's an alien invasion. But he plays it without being offensive in the least. He plays it and you love him for it. All of the, all of the characters, the, the main characters that will work together from here on out seemed already to be working together so smoothly and so fluidly. It, it, it's a delight to watch. I really enjoy this story a lot it's for so many reasons you said. I mean, it, it looks beautiful and, and the characters are fantastic. And I don't know if I've ever mentioned my how much I love the Brigadier. I'm a huge, huge Brigadier fan. And, and so, um, and he's, he's, he's great in this. And it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really wonderful story. And now it's time for the, the continuing series, Ian and Michelle reviewing Big Finish. Uh, you're continuing with Eighth Doctor Adventures, correct, Michelle? That's true. Still working our way through his first season. Awesome. Um, I think I've said it before, but um, the Eighth Doctor uh, Big Finish audios are, are my favorites. So uh, I love hearing what you guys have to say about it. Uh, and uh, here it is for the listeners. Big Finish with Ian and Michelle from across the Atlantic Ocean. Ian from the UK and Michelle from the United States. Reviewing Big Finish Sorting out the wheat from the chaff and nonsense Saving you money on the ones that are not so good 
Moving along in our journey through the Paul McGann first season of audios, we've come now to their third story, Stones of Venice, although actually the first one that they recorded in terms of recording order. In this story, the Doctor and Charlie land in 23rd century Venice to find that Venice is collapsing into the sea. I've never been here at this time before. Is it dangerous? I mean, obviously, what I really want is for you to put me in the midst of a really life-threatening situation. I'd really like that. Oh, you'd notice that, of course. It all depends how long there is before the whole place goes tumbling and crumbling into the warm Adriatic. I found this uh, an odd story. Uh, As you say, this is supposed to be set in the 23rd century, but I found that the dialogue and the general structure made it feel more like a historical You've got sort of a court with almost a sort of a royal court feel to it uh, and this sort of very aristocratic um, uh, element. And it it felt more historical than future. And I I found that slightly off-putting in terms of getting a handle on the story. It's very wordy. I mean, this this sounds a bit odd for an audio drama, but I found that it was too wordy. Uh, There was long bouts of back-and-forth dialogue between different characters that are sort of giving exposition to each other, much of it self-referential without necessarily reference to the broader story and I found it quite hard to follow it, it's not bad the performances are for the most part quite good although there's one particular exception I'll come back to but as a story I, I really struggled to get get a handle on it I understand what you're saying my overall impression of this story is really more of a feel or a sense or an emotional mood. It's very, very evocative. This was written by Paul Mars, and there's a lot of poetic language, a lot of imagery. I found this one was creating very vivid images of this decaying Venice and, and a real mood of gloom and melancholy and fatalism and social decay. They're mostly drunk. They seem to think it's the thing to do. A fatalism. Seems like a fair enough response to me. They're all here for the party. That's what they think it is. And it isn't? Crazed aristocrats, madmen, inveterate revelers, all of them here for the final carnival of all. I don't know what they're expecting, besides a great deal of destruction. They'll all die, of course. The mental images, this is another case where the, the, the pictures were best on audio, were very, very powerful for me and very striking. But the story that was set within those places and images was kind of average. I didn't dislike this one. There, there are some elements I liked. I liked, for instance, there, the idea that the gondoliers over, over the centuries had actually evolved into an amphibious state and were going to be just fine if the city crashed under the waves because they were going to take over and, and you know live a, an aquatic life. But the primary story was a little bit average. Yeah, and I was I was happy to hear the late great Michael Sheard in here. He's an icon for my generation for you know his work on Grange Hill and uh, The Empire Strikes Back. But actually, as the play progressed, I got really really tired of what he was doing because I don't know what the audio equivalent of chewing the scenery was, but he was so overwrought and so melodramatic in his delivery. I found it actually became tiring to listen to it. Uh, and I found that a real shame because I, I love him as, a, as an actor and I've always loved the, the work that he's done. I gambled on the one thing I had no right to. I can still see the look in her eyes. At the second I made my stake, neither she nor I could believe I'd bargained on the only thing I could never replace. On the positive side, I mean, we're into Charlie's third story now, and I thought that, and I think generally she's an excellent companion. 
very good, very much in the sort of modern style of this sort of uh, uh, empowered women that Moffat likes to bring in so much, but without that sort of edge of aggressiveness that you get in a character like Amy, for example. So I'm finding her to be a really, really good companion. She's down to earth. She she enjoys the adventure, although she's not afraid to say, you know, hey, Doctor, where have you taken me and why did you abandon me? And this isn't quite what I had in mind. This isn't this part isn't fun. You want to follow Charlie. You want to be with Charlie through the adventures. And, and, and she makes a wonderful companion for this. Interesting that this was their first their first recording session because again the doctor and Charlie are spot on in terms of uh, their portrayals and their performances together. I'm really enjoying Indy Fisher's work uh, through this series. It's good stuff, and I can see why she has a reputation of being uh, one of the strongest companions uh, within the Big Finish uh, universe. But but ultimately, I found this story to be to be honest a bit of a mess. Uh, and I'm, by, by the time we got to the third and fourth parts, I was just really struggling to, to keep track of who is who, who's fighting who, who's the goodies, who's the baddies. It was just all a bit of a hodgepodge, and I, I, I disengaged from it before the end. <laughs> I think one of the elements of the mood I talked about is I'm not sure there were any real goodies in this other than our, our heroes. So it's interesting, in, in this first season, if you will, we, we started off with a couple of very strong stories in terms of Storm Morning and Sword of Orion. I think I'm with you that this one's kind of a little bit mediocre, although I would still recommend a listen. Wonder how the final one will be that we'll review next time. Yes, uh, Stones of Venice, interesting story. It, it's not my favourite either, and I know I, I, it's it's strange because you want to be complimentary about it. It's such a novel idea set in a Doctor Who story in a future Venice that's sunk even lower than it has in real life. And then you chuck in Michael Sheard as well. And, you know, you just think, oh, what a great idea. And somehow it just doesn't really work, does it? As I said, I really enjoyed the atmosphere and the, and the lyricality of it. But, the, yeah, there's something about the story that, that is sort of average. I, I, I mm. still enjoyed it and recommend it, but it's not one of the greats. Well, next week we'll hear what both you and Ian think about the final story in the first season of Eighth Doctor and Charlie's stories as you're going to take a look at Minuet in Hell. And that, and that normally generates some extremely strong opinions one way or the other. Let's put it that way. Spoilers. think that's about it for this episode of the doctor who podcast we've talked about third doctor sixth doctor and eighth doctor hmm right what are we going to talk about next week michelle <laughs> i honestly have no idea uh, sometimes that's the very best way I know what we're going to be talking about and listeners you can join us next week to find out as always we'd welcome your feedback any thoughts about Doctor Who either the brand new show or the stuff that's going on in production now we're very interested to hear what you think about that and what might come up or anything about what we said about classic Who Doctor Who that was on television 30-40 years ago we're just as interested in your opinions about that part of the show as well Stephen, Michelle, as always, it's been great talking to you. Listeners, we'll be back in seven days' time. Bye for now, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. You have been found guilty of listening to the Doctor Who podcast. Mm. Your fellow conspirators are James, Stephen, Michelle, Ian, and Stephen. Your sentence is to find more episodes of the show at thedoctorwhopodcast.com or visit Facebook, Twitter, or drop by the Doctor Who Podcast forums 
where you can ruminate on the severity of your crimes. Thank you for listening. Court dismissed. <laughs>